circa 2018, 2019, we really took a look at the business and, and where people were consuming products that were like ours. And we realized that when you go to a retail store, maybe the cocktail sections, maybe four feet, it's not as big as chips or snacks or sodas. And so what that really meant was that people were always looking for other places to shop amazing new discovery products. And so we started to bolster up and create our online systems in a, in a really robust way back then. And so when COVID hit and emerged, um, we were really ready for understanding where the customer journey already was, right? And understanding mm -hmm. that that four foot shelf in theory was going to get shrink because most retailers were going to just buy what they sold regularly. And they were not going to give anyone any new discovery points, right? Because right. they were tightening their ropes and getting ready for uh, the pandemic. And so discovery was kind of left to, to really, really nurture the online ecosystem. And so because we had already built some of those systems, we were, we were kind of poised and ready to absorb the online search, if you will, for mm -hmm. those kind of products. And so we built up a, a, a pretty decent Amazon and home Shopify business over the last 24 mm -hmm. months um, to be able to sustain and kind of grow our business there. Hi there, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Rajkowski, your host today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk with thought leaders in today's food industry discuss the trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. Today, we're speaking with Jamari Pinkard, actually co-founder and CEO of Hello Cocktail. Welcome to the program, Jamari. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Well, um, we're here on almost the last working day of 2021. You know, maybe we can get started with helping our audience understand, you know, who are you and where, are you, where did you come from? What led you up to being a co-founder, the company that you're running today? Wow, what a great question. I, I, I guess I have to go back a number of years. Let's see, where's the story begin? The story begins um, as a hobby among some of my buddies uh, that I actually met a long time ago on Craigslist. And we became friends with a, with a story for another day. The, the friendship was the kind of friendship where we did all kinds of projects. And one of the projects that my co-founders, Eddie and Tobin, were working on were making cocktail bitters as a hobby. And this hobby galvanized into a Kickstarter back in 2011, uh, where they tried to raise 900 bucks and raised about 2,200 bucks for making cocktail bitters and thought that there was a eureka moment where there was a cool hipster idea for making cocktail tangents gentle products, i.e. cocktail bitters. And for those that don't know what cocktail bitters are, uh, they're a flavorful infusion of, of spices, fruit, and bitter root traditionally goes in, in, your, in your, your traditional uh, cocktails. Think old-fashioned, Sazerac, Manhattan, et cetera, et cetera. And this hobby um, completely got out of control over time as the hobby kind of um, unfolded and, and took its own life form and sucked us all into it in, a, in an amazing way. Well, you're, uh, I think, also based in a pretty interesting place for that in, around the greater New York City area. Tremendous culture there for um, cocktails, et cetera. How did, how did everything actually come together in terms of starting this company? That's the, the key background on the team that came together and the, the passion and culture, uh, maybe the, the hobby that became a business behind it. But you formed a, a company that's getting... It's really good traction and some pretty big customers out there. I think, uh, you know, back then as well, it was the the kind of beginning of the resurgence of the cocktail scene. The speakeasies were popping up all over the country. Um, and, you know, we weren't the, the kind of guys who had the handlebar mustache or suspenders. And not that we didn't respect it, but it was too mysterious for us. And we kind of wanted to figure out how some not enthusiast experts could figure out how to participate in the space. Those things happening at the same time was kind of fortuitous for us over time. Everyone wanted to understand how to make cocktails and 
a more enthusiastic way without losing the quality, but not having to do a 27 minute cocktail either. So our idea, as we understood who we were as humans and values, we started to put pillars down into the ground, which were things like for us bias, the type attitudes, which is this is for everyone, cocktail culture for everyone. How do we open that door to education and the understanding of what the tools of the trade are without being too uh, cocky about it? Right. And so for us, it was about normalizing and educating the audience or the, our constituents of, of what the products were and the tools were to make awesome cocktails. When we when we understood that we had a cool product that we enjoyed and we liked and we understood what we were solving for, made it a little bit more easy to create new products and understand where we could meet our customers. Right. And so mm. at the beginning, that looked like meeting our customers at bars and restaurants where the bartender or the barkeep was buying those accoutrements, if you will. And we realized quickly, oh, they don't buy them at the bar. They buy them at smaller specialty or cocktail shops. And so those were our first partnerships. We're finding where those smaller specialty uh, stores were that sold things like cocktail bitters and specialty salt and amazing chocolate. And so we, we realized that they were all over the country because that's where bartenders shop. We began forming partnerships with a ton of those stores to really just begin the idea of where to where to meet our customers at, at least our initial customers. And so that was kind of the uh, the seed. Those relationships became the seed for what's blossomed into a, a larger a larger company with a bigger footprint at this point. Excellent. Well, let's yeah, very interested to get into kind of the progress that's been made in the customers. And as we discussed before, some of the authenticity that really comes through in your business and your passion for your business. But uh, maybe to your point earlier, and um, myself, I'm pretty familiar with bitters and, and enjoy using them and cocktails, um, but some people may not be as familiar with it. And I think you also have an interesting story on the ingredients and how you are really focused on the quality of ingredients in your product. So maybe tell us a little bit more about the products that Hella has and how you go about making the best, really the best bitters you can based on the ingredients that you're using. Sure. Yeah. At this point in Hella's life cycle, we have basically, we're basically a portfolio company, which means that we offer kind of three verticals of product offerings. The first being the cocktail bitters, which were our first things that we've created. Uh, then we kind of morphed and graduated into the crack and pour mixers. Think Bloody Mary mix, margarita mix, things that uh, I think people are much more familiar with, but we wanted to make sure that they were up to snuff in terms of the quality, which a lot of times um, they weren't in the marketplace. And finally, we've launched a ready-to-drink bitters and soda, which is powered by our bitters themselves, which we think are a great new vessel um, for a sparkling non-out um, that can be drank alone or consumed with with your favorite spirit. So we are proud of the, the portfolio we have now uh, in terms of offering to people that are on their cocktail or mocktail journey. So you know, at this point, hell is really solving for choice, right, along your journey, mm -hmm. and we're. Not, we're not saying that you can or can't drink and how much you should, but we are saying, please be moderate, please be responsible. And in doing so, we want to offer you the best quality products. And so to your question about what we use is, and uh, for example, in our bitters, we use whole spices, right? So think things like fennel, coriander, peppercorns, allspice, rose hips. These are just some of the amazing spices that we use um, that macerate in very high proof alcohol, uh, which then we cut with water uh, to create a beautiful concentrate. Um, that's all powered by gentian root, which is an indigenous flowering plant uh, to Southern Europe. And it's what makes bitters kind of bitter, right? If you think mm -hmm. about products like a Campari or Aperol, um, they all also have gentian in them to make them uh, a, a bitter palate. And then what you do is create the directional flavor you want in terms of ginger or uh, and blends to your maceration over time and let them age. And so, you know, hell has always been about quality because we didn't like what was on the shelf, that we couldn't tell what the quality was, right? It was very, very um, confusing of what we were buying and how 
that built um, and helped, uh, you know, uh, build your cocktail. And so we were very, very purposeful on thinking about how we were going to build our spice cabinet and how that was going to, and how that like continues to permeate through the flavor profiles today. And it's an interesting point you make about really your focus on quality and then the transparency that's, I think we're seeing more and more interest in consumer focus on the transparency of what's in their product. And we see a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself, just putting a ton of effort into producing really great products, but then communicating that to the consumer is sometimes a challenge. What do you see as from your consumer point of view, the point of view of your consumers, of their interest in the transparency of the product, you know, the raw materials you're using, but and also really the effort and the passion that you put into that? It's a great question. When we first started, our packaging was amazing and some friends some friends of ours helped design it. Um, it was super hipster and very in the know. If you, were in, if you knew what bitters were, then you kind of knew what they were and what, they, what the ingredient base was. And so over time, we've realized that we were ever speaking to a very small audience, which was great. And, it, and it, our packaging um, allowed us to do that for a long time. Um, in the last few years, though, we had to revisit our packaging for exactly that reason. It wasn't communicating the ingredient story, right? Mm. And so we had to revisit it and say, okay, how do we communicate when we're not there to voice over how passionate we are and what's in the product? We needed to evoke that on the packaging. And so that was that was like step one in trying to communicate that to the customer was mm-hmm. redesigning the packaging so they could, you can see the actual ingredients on the package itself visually, right? Beyond the words and the ingredient panel. And so I think in doing so, we were successful in creating the ingredient quality story, but also inviting more people um, to that story as you know, consumers really start to care about what's in the product, right? To your point, I mean, mm-hmm. consumers are, are much, much smarter than they were because there's more information that's at your fingertips. If you think mm-hmm. about uh, the 90s when people were working out really hardcore and there was like the shake weight and the thigh master and the bow flex, it wasn't necessarily about all these tools, but it was about people getting more education about how to take care of their bodies. When the dust settles, it's all about going for a run and making sure you're eating healthy, right? That was kind of like the understanding a decade later. Um, and the same thing is happening in, in, in food and beverage. Food was definitely first and beverage is following where people are just more educated about what's inside the the drink they're having and they want to know more. And so our job ha- has been to do that. You know, we've always kind of followed those ingredient storylines because it was important to us. Um, and over time, we've gotten better and better at communicating it on packaging and then on mm-hmm. social and other ways um, right. to really tell the consumer, hey, this is really good quality product. Yeah. And I think as you kind of made some allusion to social media, et cetera, it's these days, it's really so easy for people to dig deep into the background of a product they're using a little bit of time, like less than a minute on your smartphone, you can find out all sorts of interesting things. But that also provides the vector for producers like yourself to put in front of consumers in a very easy to consume way. This is why our product is special and, and what's going into it. And it strikes me also that your product is, is almost accidentally, if you will, because of what it's traditionally made out of, almost a product that we see a space called functional foods. I think quite a number of the, you know, the components of the, your bitters products that have all sorts of interesting um, health aspects to them. Do you see that as part of the interest area of people consuming your beverage, especially those that might be on the non-alcoholic side and drinking it because it tastes good and has certain properties? Do you ever see this, the questions about functional foods coming up? We do. It's, it's, it's always this, this gray area of like how functional is function and what does function mean? And I think it means different mm-hmm. things to different brands and different yeah. consumers. So it's a very fine line, but when we think about a function, I think the you know bitters folk law, and and there's there's definitely science behind gentian, um, but the gentian root itself is as a as a flowering plant, like I said, the bark of a tree that's commonly used for 
um, digestive properties, right? And to help your mm -hmm. gut health. And so we don't make huge claims of that because we're not playing in the medicine field, um, right. in a medical field, but, but there is some, there is some science behind the efficacy of gentian root. The question for us is, do we have enough in our bitters by the vessel, um, by the dosage to make an imprint that's, that's truly something we can like lock in on. We still have to, we still have to do a little bit more research to figure out what that level is of gentian that makes the impact. And so we don't make those medicinal claims. However, um, with all that said, um, there is a huge community um, in the herbalist community that that was always solving for the idea of something that's that's actually bitter, having the same kind of opening and tummy properties because it's part of the digestive system. And so the fact that something is bitter always starts that conversation mm -hmm. of of actually what's really happening in, the, in uh, as you as you kind of consume something. So uh, there's some medicinal um, properties to bitters that are actually factual and have science back to them. And again, the question is, where's the gray line for what function actually means? And so the nutritionist uh, community is really behind us in that way, because it is powered by gentian root and mm -hmm. all the other spices that create uh, bitter elements and digestive properties. Well, it seems like you're already in your product line. Like you said, you have essentially three verticals right now, um, sort of branching out um, in a direction that, you know, may, there may be a fourth and a fifth vertical coming up in the future. And, and maybe we'll come back to that toward the end of this podcast. But I, I'm curious to learn more about kind of your experience over the last couple of years as consumers have had to learn different ways of acquiring products that they're eating or drinking, et cetera, um, because maybe stores and shops and restaurants weren't uh, as open as they had used to be. I'm curious, how has that affected your business and how, and also how you're reaching out to consumers with e-commerce becoming a much more accepted way and comfortable way for people to be buying their food products? Good question. Um, for us, I think, uh, you know, circa 2018, 2019, we really took a look at the business and, and where people were consuming products that were like ours. And we realized that when you go to a retail store, maybe the cocktail sections, maybe four feet, it's not as big as chips or snacks or sodas. And so what that really meant was that people were always looking for other places to shop um, amazing new discovery products. And so we started to bolster up and create our online systems in a, in a really robust way back then. And so when COVID hit and emerged, um, we were really ready for understanding where the customer journey already was, right? And understanding mm -hmm. that that four foot shelf in theory was going to get shrink because most retailers were going to just buy what they sold regularly. And they were not going to give anyone any new discovery points, right? Because right. they were tightening their ropes and getting ready for uh, the pandemic. And so discovery was kind of left to, to really, really nurture the online ecosystem. And so because we had already built some of those systems, we were, we were kind of poised and ready to absorb the, 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 the online search, if you will, for mm -hmm. those kind of products. And so we built up a, a, a pretty decent home Shopify business over the last 24 mm -hmm. months um, to be able to sustain and kind of grow our business there, right? And so we had this kind of small thesis that I think is was always there for most companies. Um, uh, but for, you know, places where when you think about cocktailing and drinking, it's usually a last minute purchase where people are thinking about it on Friday for Friday. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to figure out how to get in front of that in a lot of ways by communicating early delivery, fast delivery, free shipping, and things like that to our consumer base. So it's a lot, a lot more um, talking to our consumers direct on social and trying to amplify our, our message and our value proposition um, right in time for, if you will, for COVID uh, to kind of strike and bring right. that opportunity slash whatever, whatever, whatever we want to call that downtime, right? That downturn mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. For yeah. a lot of people. I think um, I understood as this company started getting speed and momentum, a lot of your customer interface was through bartenders and you know, essentially 
bars where the product would be sold. Have you seen that that has um, really significantly changed and that now most of your, your interaction with customers is on social media, for example, electronically? Or do you still see that, at least as things clear up on the COVID side, you know, primary channel of consumer contact is face-to-face? Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's both now, right? You don't you didn't subtract, you didn't you didn't uh, you know grow and subtract. You grew and you had to expand and say, okay, now you know where we initially started out serving mainly the bartender community. Now we've expanded to serving the retail community and the end consumer community that's doing it at home and trying to replicate what that amazing bartender showed them, right? And so mm-hmm. there's more constituents to service, and that means there's um, an opportunity there, but also a challenge in delivering different kinds of information to different constituents at different times of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more work to do, um, but that's kind of what we started out as, right? We wanted to educate, we wanted to be hospitable to our communities for the same reason we were solving for ourselves, right? And so at the end of the day, we were always solving for bringing our authentic selves to those different audiences. And maybe there's a different nomenclature we have to use to explain, you know, eucalyptus bitters versus a margarita mix, but that's okay, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. on a different part of their journey. And so for us, it's just actually more work in, mm-hmm. in doing that, but that's what we welcome. That's that's part of, of what we do for a living and enjoy, right? Is That's where yeah. the passion comes from, is being able to deliver those different points of view for different people at different times in their kind of cocktailing and vibing journey. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting that you describe it that way. It's say the social media, electronic communications work that needs to be done. It's not easy. It's, you know, it takes a lot of time, but at the same time, uh, is a great enabler um, early businesses because would imagine that say 20 years ago trying to start this type of business either it would be very boutique and like you said maybe still a hobby there would have to be a tremendous amount of marketing money behind it to get it into all sorts of stores across you know a country or multiple countries how is that challenge of and opportunity of essentially becoming a tech company along with a bidders company how is that um, sort of processed by you and your team Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, not easy. <laughs> Let, mm. Let's say that, right? You really have to think about what your priorities are on a day-to-day, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter basis and shuffle them depending on what's actually happening and what opportunities present themselves and which ones don't. Yes, there is some level of, of having vision and being kind of like stubborn about your priorities and values, but understanding that doors, certain doors will open at different times and understanding that they may have a different resource commitment or constraint um, around them. You know, there's no, there's no silver bullet to answer all the questions. What's mm-hmm. the most important for us though, is that we understand the consumer insight and what they're solving for and how that changes, because that informs us of how and when and where to meet them. Right. And so it means um, if it's a certain, you know, year, if it's COVID, if there's certain opportunities, we understand that we need to focus on social media to meet them versus being inside of a retail establishment with our team physically versus being at some kind of trade event where our bartender friends are. And so understanding what the consumer is looking for helps us understand how we need to reprioritize and reshuffle that deck on a regular mm-hmm. basis without losing our values internally and also what the consumers really want. Well, I think certainly at the end of the day, you're also selling your values. Those values, that's part of the reason people are very interested in the product. I think it's uh, pretty compelling, I would say, marketing, if you will, behind it. Um, It certainly resonates a lot with, I think, the new ideals and sustainability and, you know, decentralization, all these things that are coming out um, in the community. How do you make it, um, I guess, maybe more convenient for your consumers to reach back to you 
So like you said, you're trying to understand obviously what their interests are and what their directions are. Certainly they, you know, they can look for your phone number or your email address, but do you find certain channels work better for you and absorbing that customer feedback? Yeah, right, right now, I think, um, you know, it, it depends on the customer, the customer who is a, um, a bar, a restaurant, a establishment of some sort, it's always great to be on the phone with them, right? Or on a Zoom and get the face-to-face or the the nuance in someone's voice to understand what they are all, what they're thinking about um, because those things change, especially with a bar who has seasonal menu programs. And so they're always very fluid and you kind of want to stay on. You want to understand the pulse of what's going on in that community. And so I'd say, you know, those are always a little bit more um, phone or Zoom or in-person relationships that you build and nurture. Whereas your direct to customer consumers are very much absorbed in social because those are maybe their quick conversations. Maybe there's a question that we have or they have that we can dive into further, but they're not time constrained, right? They're not time box. And so you can have a conversation over a week or over a two week period with that customer to understand what's going on, why they liked it, where they bought it from, what are they doing with it, right? It's a time thing that they're going to use it. They, they're not like um, using it instantaneous, in, instantaneously all the time as a bar or restaurant would. Who needs mm-hmm. it like on demand? They might be planning for a party, you know, in two weeks. And only after that two weeks will you get that feedback loop. And so um, mm-hmm. D2C, a, a lot more on social and email, uh, wholesale, retail partners, a lot more on phone and physical person. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like that's become a great channel for you as people are able to hold your bottle and find some way of reaching back to you and your, your team to give you their good and their, let's say, challenging feedback for the, for the product. Um, I'm curious, what do you see for, you know, the next couple of years on, in your company and your growth areas, you've already got, as you said, three verticals you're working on. How do you see those growing up and where do you see other opportunities for verticals based on the interests that consumers are expressing to you? Good question. I feel like at this point, you know, hell has been in kind of expansion mode for the betterment of our existence. And at this point, I think we are going to probably pause on innovation because we've always mm-hmm. been in innovation mode. And we're thinking about how to go deeper into the things that we have, you know, really, really understand what's working and what's not working from the current portfolio and make and really understand if we need to make any changes to flavor profile and things that we have or changes to packaging or changes to design or changes to bundling different curations in different places. And so I think the next, you know, 24 months are really about honing in on what we have and and trying to over deliver on the quality that we in the message of the quality that we have in our products and make sure that that story is being is resonating um, the way we wanted to versus kind of expanding. So we're really calling 2022 operation go deep. Um, okay. Where where Excellent. where 2020 to 2022 was survive in advance, right? Because of the <laughs> so we have these themes that we lock into and really you know um, go hard at on a daily basis when we when we think about them in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you're a qualified expert in the beverage space. And I think if we were to look back over the last 20 years, um, and let's call it specialty beverages, certainly craft uh, beers, craft alcohol, small batch, all these types of things were very, very, very popular. My sense is, and I'm curious of your feedback on this, that there's a shift in what consumers are preferring to drink, uh, again, in their, I would say, the social environment of drinking something. And it seems to be away from alcohol or reduced alcohol. Is that something you're seeing? And if it is, how is Hella responding to that? Yeah, it, it, there's something definitely there. The customer that, that 
that's a non-drinker or someone who doesn't drink that much has probably been a customer that hasn't been um, focused on from the big brand perspective for a very long time. You know, maybe it's called the the curious movement or the sober curious movement or the Mm -hmm. mindful drinking movement definitely has legs because people that don't drink or don't drink that much still want quality. They still want to solve for Mm -hmm. the cocktail occasion and they still want something that's complex and flavorful. It doesn't cut corners, right? And so while that market is definitely here, the question really is going to be how big the market is in terms of business. We don't know how big it will be, but we do know there was a big gap in the market in terms of filling that void. For Hella, what that looks like, it doesn't change us at all. We were always solving for choice, inclusivity, and authentic self to that occasion. And so all of the Hella products can be used in an alcoholic setting or a non-alcoholic setting. And so we feel like we are still the right horse for the course, right? We still solve (laughs) that puzzle with quality, complexity and flavor where we lead with. And so if you're a non-drinker, you're welcome to enjoy a non-Bloody Mary or our bitters and soda, right? And still solve for that amazing occasion that has social um, tradition and and things happen and you want to be part of part of whatever's going on. And so we invite you to that party um, in a major way. And so Hella, Hella, Hella is, is for everyone. Like I said, at the beginning of the, of the podcast, you know, it's cocktail culture for everyone. And, and cocktail culture doesn't mean that you have to be drinking. Yeah. Some words that have come up a number of times in our discussion here, for example, authenticity and sort of people expressing their true selves. Um, This seems to be woven into the DNA of your company. And I wonder if maybe tell us a little bit more about how that's happened and how that leads to your growth and sort of your mission and mandate to, you know, solve your passion through this business. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, the founders of the business come from so varying walks of life with different perspectives that the way we showed up to meet ourselves, to meet each other in the hobby are, are, are different walks of life. You know, Eddie's from the Bay um, and that's where he grew up. And and, and the word hella actually is, 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 is from there, which just means intensely um, something. Right. And so Eddie, you know, is, is an awesome Mexican Filipino guy who loves to ride a motorcycle, right. And loves to ride bicycles and loves to do all kinds of things where he goes really, really deep into them when he gets when he gets attached to them, which is really amazing. Tobin is from Massachusetts and he wanted to be a chef, right? Um, when he grew up and he's of Caucasian descent. And so he's really amazing with flavor, like with flavors. And he was a bartender and he has such a vast experience with cooking and food and, and things like that amongst being an amazing, amazing person. And then I'm from New York uh, with, with a background more in business and like strategy and I love being social. And so we just come from these completely mm-hmm. different walks of life. Um, and the things that we carry on our in our book bags are very authentic to ourselves and our perspectives. And that's actually like our superpower. Our superpower mm-hmm. is that we can bring all these different perspectives to any table, food, beverage, or or anything else, right? That's going on in the world and have a um, an anchor in the ground that, mm-hmm. that is meaningful. And so we never wanted to escape and try to cover those things up. We wanted to really accentuate our differences um, because they mm-hmm. give us our power and they give us our, our authenticity. And so when we mm-hmm. talk about it, it kind of bleeds through us into the brand um, and we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. I'm curious and talk a little bit. How does that bleed through to the customer? How do they experience that? Because it, there's almost a dichotomy there of obviously there's a passion from the founders, co-founders of the business and the leaders. And that is a very legitimate marketing approach. But at the same time, you know, people are somewhat allergic to sort of the hard sell marketing approach. And they're, let's say, sensitive, particular about throwing away the garbage they think is coming from, you know, large corporate boardrooms of 
let's just tell them this, here's our slogan, let's cram it down their throat versus a company that actually literally founded itself based on these principles you're talking about. How do you sort through that in communicating with customers? They, they know it's authenticity and it's not just a concocted marketing slogan. Yeah, good question. I mean, we do a few things, but one thing is we actually just say that, right? We just say it and we have, you know, we have some principles that we, that we put up so often that are about who we are and who we are not, right? So we make a very clear delineation of like the things that we don't do. We're not pompous. We're not like, we don't believe in certain principles in communicating to the customer or to ourselves. And so we just put that out there. That's like, number one, put out who you are, right? Yeah. Um, and then two is like, how do you back it up? How do you prove it? Um, and so the ways that you prove it really can only be seen at this point on social because we're not, we don't have a big commercial during the Super mm -hmm. Bowl, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do things like interview bartenders on social and talk about not them only making a cocktail, but who they are in their journey, right? And so we are in the business of humanizing the actual space we sit in every day. Mm -hmm. um, we do the same thing on the entrepreneurship side. So not only do it with our constituents and ask them how their lives are and how their journeys are, but we take it from an entrepreneurial perspective and we ask and we educate the food and beverage community on how to build food and beverage businesses, right? Very transparently. These are the margins. This is how distribution mm -hmm. works. And so if a customer cares enough to dig, they will find all this data, all these data points that uh, kind of back up what we said we are and, and what we said we do. And so yeah, we're so not we're very transparent about those things. And I think the internet fortunately helps us kind of like execute that in a very efficient uh, way that anyone can find that kind of information over time or at their leisure. It seems like we come back to this challenge of the tech side versus what you're literally doing in your daily business life, which is the authenticity of the business and expressing that to the customer. Like you said, if a customer wants to dig, they're absolutely going to find a lot, but uh, making it easy for them to absorb this. I've heard this from a number of entrepreneurs and they're just trying, you know, they, they throw a five second, second clip of their daily life into a, you know, that's accessible through a QR code or however they're making it social channel available with their product. And um, these are the, some of the challenges that entrepreneurs are solving for today in terms of using this technology, which is very, very powerful, but not letting it be, you know, it can't become most of what you do. Most of what you do needs to be to make your product and get it out there. It's like this, the, the social technology needs to be more helping you and less of a distraction from your time, it seems like. And it, for a lot of people, I feel like it still absorbs more of their time than they probably are really interested in putting into it. Is that fair to say from your side? I think I'd probably be on the other side of that coin because I think that relationship building is probably the most important part of the business. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we, we, we think that quality is paramount, right? And it's like the integrity of the product matters more than almost anything except the customer, mm -hmm. right? Because once you have a formula and you're making it, your quality and assurances that your formulas are consistent is almost like given. That's going to happen, right? And so once you've solved for that, which which we have in a lot of ways, of course, we're always going to do Q&A and check flavor, but the manufacturing side of the business is something that's really hard to maintain and do, but like to the customer, it's given. Yeah. And so for us, what we, what we, think about more often than not is communicating with the customer, right? Like why are they on the, what part of the journey and how do we keep them a customer? Because there's no business without repeat customers and customers that want to believe in your brand and pass it on and spread it word of mouth. It doesn't really exist. And so we think about what are all the different channels that we can speak to the customer directly and how mm -hmm. often can we do it, right? And how efficiently can we do it? Because I think that's what's hard about, the hardest part is that it's not efficient, right? And so if yeah. we can be more and more efficient about it, I think we do more and more of yeah. it. Um, and 
So I would say thank you for crafting my words a bit more clearly. Like certainly I can see part of your business is um, obviously communicating with your customer, but it's the efficiency that uh, sometimes is maybe a challenge in making things more efficient so that you can spend your time actually communicating less time thinking about how you're going to communicate um, that type of thing. So yeah, I think that that's very important, certainly for a lot of When you think um, about so when you think about places like airlines, right, like or utility companies, they're they're probably they're in the business of service. They have a asset, a plane, a phone line, but their customer service people need to be like top notch because they're in the business of serving customers. And I think we're in the same business. We're in hospitality, right? And so mm-hmm. if we're if we if we don't have the manpower to be hospitable, then we're it's like then you're really in trouble, right? <laughs> Yeah. That's where the trouble starts because yeah, that that's kind of the name of the game is this is a hospitality company. And so our job is to be hospitable to all of our different types of audience members, constituents that we serve and have the manpower to do it. Yeah. Well, it's uh, again, being at the end of the year here, it's probably, it's a great time to be doing this uh, particular podcast. I imagine there's going to be a lot of people, certainly in the, the greater New York area and maybe I guess across uh, North America that are going to be enjoying your products on the weekend uh, as we celebrate the new year coming in. I really appreciate you being on the program today. And um, we, everybody, I think, will have more of a chance to be enjoying the Helicoctail products. Um, I haven't seen them yet up here in Canada where I'm based, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to enjoying that as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and you can find, I think uh, we have some products out there in Montreal and Quebec. So there's a few shops that uh, that carry our stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you'll make it out to Calgary, I'm sure, soon enough. <laughs> anyway, you, thanks again. You have a great holiday weekend and uh, look forward to more from Hella in 2022. Thank you and enjoy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcasts is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.